Well, last week we were looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 4 to 13, the rest of that chapter, talking about the issue of eating food that had previously been sacrificed to an idol, particularly dining in an idol's temple. And we saw in the text that Paul was urging the church to lay down their rights for the sake of love. That's Paul's point in this large section of the letter. It's really from the start of chapter 8 through the end of chapter 10, and Paul is making this point that our rights that we have as free people, as Christians who are free from the law, our rights need to be laid down for the sake of love when the moment calls for it. But I want us to look at verse 10, and I want to, want to provide a clarification on verse 10. Not that anybody spoke to me this week, there were no questions posed, but as I was thinking it over in my mind, I thought I would like to make this a little bit clearer, and because today's message is a, uh, it's a holiday weekend message, it's a little bit shorter, I thought, well, I've got a little more time to go back and provide clarification. So maybe it'll be a regular length sermon, I don't know. But let's look at verse 10 again of 1 Corinthians 8. Paul writes, "...for if someone sees you who have knowledge..." Dining in an idol's temple, will his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? And I want us to talk about, uh, think on that phrase, idol's temple, dining in an idol's temple. And uh, as I stated last week, we're not talking about meat that would be purchased in the market, meat that was sacrificed to an idol and then later on sold in a market. That comes in chapter 10. This is, in fact, talking about dining in an idol's temple. Uh, but the clarification I want to provide on this, and perhaps it's more of just reiterating what was said last week, so there is no question, is that dining in an idol's temple, if your conscience is free to do such a thing, always does depend on your reasons and on your motives. Dining in an idol's temple has to be done for a godly purpose, not for pagan worship. Because what goes on in the temple of idols? Well, false worship does, right? And if you are going to be found there, if you're going to be dining there with others, as a Christian, you cannot be there for the purpose of joining into false worship. You must consider all the factors that are at hand, and there are a lot of factors to consider. Those with a strong conscience in the Lord are free, they were free in Paul's day, they are free today to make this decision, but they have to make this decision in wisdom, knowing that even if it gives the appearance of joining them in worship, that is something that you need to strongly consider, but you must never join them in worship. And I want to share with you a quote from MacArthur, I could have shared it last week, Um, But I thought he did a great job summing up the issue here. John MacArthur wrote in his commentary, A mature believer rightly sees no harm for himself in dining in an idol's temple in some family or community event. He does not accept the pagan beliefs or participate in the pagan practices, but he can associate with pagan people because he is spiritually strong. He has spiritual knowledge. So, for the godly purpose of associating with the people, taking the gospel to the people, being a godly blessing among the people, well, that is certainly one reason why someone, some believer, might find himself or herself in an idol's temple dining. Uh, But we have to be so careful 
that we never cross the line to accept the pagan beliefs or participate in the pagan practices because a Christian should never be associated with such a thing. It's never acceptable. And it does make it difficult today because we don't exactly have an apples-to-apples comparison perfectly to the situation Paul was talking about. Uh, I would venture to guess that none of you are aware of people who are eating meat that was sacrificed to an idol. (laughs) So uh, that does make it a little different. So in these conscience matters, we always have to dwell on these things, meditate on these things, pray and get counsel, and follow your God-given conscience to glorify Him, okay? That has to be our view. And now today, we're getting into the next section of the letter. As Paul brings that up, he's going to return to that topic, but we see a very clear pivot starting in verse 1 of chapter 9. And let me just read the text for today, uh, starting with verse 1 of chapter 9. "'Am I not free?' Paul asks. "'Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord?' If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? This is Paul beginning a defense of his ministry. And it may seem that this section doesn't exactly flow from the previous chapter. You might be wondering, what is he doing? Well, there is a cohesion to this, okay? I I promise you, chapter 8 through chapter 10... It's all on the same topic. Paul's doing two things in our text today. First, he's answering his critics. You see that clearly in verse 3. He's giving a defense to those who examine him. He's answering his critics because many people then, as many people now do, they questioned Paul and they examined his authority. Perhaps you have met people before who are red-letter Christians Meaning, the, the words of Jesus, yes, they accept all of those, and they say that's what makes them a Christian. But what about Paul? Paul wrote so much of the New Testament, and of course, Paul, in many ways, when we consider the culture wars that we are currently engaged in, Paul is kind of a firecracker, isn't he? He's a lightning rod. Well, Paul is an apostle. He's defending his apostleship, and he's defending his authority. Look at verse 2 again with me. He says, if, if to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you. The Corinthians knew Paul was an apostle because they were the result of his holding that office. Because God had called him to salvation and because God had made him an apostle, he was effective in his church planting. And he says to the Corinthians, he reminds them, if other people say, I'm not an apostle, well, at least I am to you. And he goes as far to say, you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. As they would seal a document to make it official in that day with melted wax or whatever they might use to show that it was official, Paul is saying, because of the result of the church in Corinth, we can say, yes, I am officially an apostle. You are the proof. You're the exhibit A evidence. So the first thing he's doing is answering his critics. The second thing we see him doing in our passage today is clarifying to the church how he set aside his personal rights as an apostle 
for the sake of loving service. Remember, he was just imploring them to do this in chapter 8 with the meat that was offered to idols, calling them to think about their brothers and sisters. Don't cause them to stumble. Well, Paul is going to use his own life as an example and say, look how I laid down my rights. And one of my commentators made note of, if you're going to use yourself as an example, you better have a strong conscience, right? (laughs) The only way you could do such a thing to point to yourself as an example is if you've been living with a clear conscience before the Lord. And that's what Paul does in our text today. And the first thing we see here is that Paul asserts that he is a free apostle. You see his first two questions in chapter 9, verse 1, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? What does he mean by free? (laughs) Well, he has freedoms as a Christian, just as Christians in non-moral issues have freedom to follow their conscience, one person this way, another person that way, one person being strong in conscience, another being weak in conscience. Paul is saying, I'm free. I'm a free believer in the Lord. That's the theme of these chapters. He's free from the law. And you could argue that perhaps Paul, being an apostle, had even more freedom. Think of the time that this was all taking place as the church was just starting to be built. And you have lots of people coming to faith, either from a pagan background or from a Jewish background, and trying to figure out how all this is going to work now in the church, this new organism that God is building on the face of the earth. Well, Paul, being an apostle, receiving direct revelation from God, being led in a powerful way by the Holy Spirit, he was certainly free in that God was guiding him, and he was getting even special revelation in his life. So, of course, he was free. After all, he was even an apostle. But we must ask the question, what's an apostle? If you don't know the answer to that question, it's important that you figure this out. What is an apostle? Well, an apostle was an early church office that came with special authority. In the same sense that a pastor or a deacon is an office in the local church, an apostle, think capital A, apostle, like Paul and Peter and the rest, that was an early church office that was held among Christians. There were qualifications to have this office. To be an apostle, you had to see Jesus. And that was mentioned right here again in verse 1. Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? There were a limited number of people who had seen Jesus. Of course, by some standards, there was a very large number of people. There were hundreds of people who saw the risen Christ. But those who were qualified to be an apostle, it was a special group of people because they had to have seen the risen Christ. And in Acts chapter 1, after the death of Judas, the apostles, the eleven, they go to replace Judas, and they eventually choose Matthias to replace Judas as an apostle. And one of the qualifications set forth in Acts chapter 1 was someone who had seen the risen Christ and someone who had been with them up until now. So the apostle had, the office of apostle, had specific qualifications. An apostle was commissioned for church planting. The word apostle literally means sent one, someone who was sent out. So someone who was an apostle was also a missionary someone who had been sent out for the purpose of planting churches in that first century. And when they planted churches, they had a special and certain effect in their ministry. We send missionaries out today, and you could call them lowercase a apostles in the sense that they're sent out. We send missionaries out to different places all over the world, local churches do, and there is no certainty 
of what's going to happen, is there? There are times it just doesn't work out. And there are no accompanying signs and wonders to verify their authority as an apostle. But in the first century, the early church, there was a special impact given through the apostles that they had signs and wonders. That's 2 Corinthians 12.12, the signs and wonders of an apostle. They were performed among people. And also there was a certainty You might remember in the book of Acts when Paul was going in prison, out of prison, he would receive direct revelation from Jesus. Jesus would appear and say, this is what's going to happen. It happened, in fact, in Corinth. Paul was dismayed, but the risen Lord appeared to Paul and says, don't worry. He says, I have many people in this city. Missionaries today don't get that direct revelation from the Lord. There was a special certainty given to the apostles as they went to plant churches. And the apostles carried authority. And this is an underlying theme in this conversation. Starting in chapter 9, Paul is communicating to the Corinthians the special authority that he had as an apostle. He could speak from God into local church issues. Think of the scenario that's happening right now, this letter we're reading. Paul is responding to some specific questions that the Corinthians had. And when Paul responded, it wasn't like church consultation people today responding to issues. Those ministries exist, and sometimes they're actually good, um, where you can have people come in from the outside to consult you with certain things. Well, those are still just man's opinion for the most part. A lot of it is pragmatism. But when Paul was responding to local church issues, he was responding with the authority of God, wasn't he? As we here in the year 2021 read his letter to the Corinthians, we're reading the words of God. We're reading the authority of God, the truth of God. And so Paul, as an apostle, carried authority as well. And as the apostles in the first century equipped the church through their revelation from God, provided the foundation for all the years of church history to follow. Did you know that today, Orchard Hills Bible Church has for its foundation the prophets and the apostles? Ephesians 2.20, it's a very important verse. You need to remember this verse. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20 says that the church has been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. How are they our foundation? Well, mostly, primarily, we have the Word of God. God used His apostles and His prophets to write the Word of God, and we are called a Bible church, aren't we? This is our authority. This is our go-to for all things pertaining to life and godliness. So we stand on the foundation of these apostles, and Paul was one. He opens up this chapter by saying he's free, by saying he's an apostle. And of course, these questions are rhetorical. It's not like he was legitimately asking the question as though there was a question about it. The answer is a resounding, yes, you are free. Yes, you are an apostle. Yes, you have seen Jesus our Lord. And yes, we are your work in the Lord. Those are the answers to these questions. And in fact, these first seven verses have 10 rhetorical questions. If we went to verse 8, we would see 12 rhetorical questions. It makes it a bit of a difficult passage to give a message on, but there's prose that Paul is using to drive home a point. And the answer to each one of his questions is obvious. So Paul, describing himself as a free apostle, now goes on to describe 
rights that come with that ministry and how he has set aside those rights for the sake of that church. Look at verse 4 with me again. We see the first right laid out, the first freedom. Paul says, do we not have a right to eat and drink? Now, taken in a wooden literal sense, that question might not make any sense because you read that and you think, well, yeah, you have to eat and drink. How would you survive? Well, he's not meaning actually the, the activity of eating and the activity of drinking. He's talking about a form of support that the Corinthians would supply for them something to eat and something to drink because of his work on their behalf. Does he have a right to support? The response, of course, is yes. Yes, of course, he has that right. Look at verse 6. This perhaps will make the issue clearer. Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? And that's not to say that him being an apostle and serving that church wasn't work. Of course, it was work. But he's talking about a different kind of work. Do, do Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from our trades of tent making and whatever else they were doing? Well, the answer, of course, is no, they had that right. They didn't have to go out tent making. They didn't have to go out and, you might say, have a day job. They didn't have to do that. The church was obligated to support them in the Lord. But Paul says, by asking these questions, that they were giving up their rights as a sacrifice to the churches. Now, you think of people living in that time and perhaps putting yourself in that position. Maybe you would have been very eager to get away from the calluses that tent making would put on your hands. The joint pain that comes from tent making, the sweat and the labor that comes from tent making. He wasn't making these tents in an air-conditioned room. He was laboring hard to provide for himself while also, in addition, free of charge, pro bono, serving as an apostle with the Corinthians, laboring with them night and day even though he had the right to refrain from such a trade. Now, of course, Barnabas wasn't with him when he was in Corinth. We don't know why he mentions Barnabas here, except for the fact that it appears as though Barnabas must have been known for doing the same thing. Barnabas accompanied Paul on many of his journeys, and it must have been known that Barnabas took after Paul by refraining from working as a sacrifice to show love for the churches. So, Paul brings that to their attention. And then in verse 7, Paul appeals to the common right of workers. Look how he uses the example of a soldier in the first question and a one who plants a vineyard in the second question and a shepherd who tends to a flock in the third question. And the answer to each of these is obvious. The worker has a right to live off of his work. The soldier doesn't serve at his own expense. The man who plants the vineyard does not abstain from eating the fruit of it. The man who tends to the flock, of course, uses the milk of the flock. He's driving the point home here that to be provided for is a basic right. To be provided for by the church is inarguable, Paul says. There's, of course, no other way to view this biblically or sensibly. And he has one other right. You may have noticed that I skipped over for the moment, but let's go back to it in verse 5. There's one other right that he brings up, interestingly, not just being provided for financially through support, but in verse 5 he says, Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Well, let's uh, break this down a little bit by looking at the details. 
he mentions some people, and we would do well to pay attention to these people. Jesus' brothers, the brothers of the Lord. Who are the brothers of the Lord? Well, Mark 6, 3 tells us that. In Mark chapter 6, verse 3, it says, the people speaking, is this not the carpenter, Jesus, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph, or Joseph, and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. So, don't typically do presentations this way, but I'm going to say ignore all the context around this verse, okay? And let's just look at the names. Um, James, you know James, Jesus' brother, right? He wrote the book of James. You skip over one and Judas, or you could call him Jude. Um, he wrote the book of Jude. And then we have a couple of other names, Joseph or Joseph and Simon. Now, we don't know much about them at all. There they are mentioned, and that's about all we know, except we know that they had wives, <laughs> right? We just found out in our passage today that they were married. And we know something else about them in Acts chapter 1, verse 14. Acts 1, 14, it says that they were all together. This is after Jesus' ascension. The disciples were all with one mind and were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So after Jesus' ascension into heaven, as the believers were gathered together, devoted to having one mind in prayer, it appears as though his brothers were converts to him. <laughs> An amazing thing that perhaps throughout his earthly ministry, there were doubts, there were questions, maybe an outright refusal. But at some point, through the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ, his brothers became believers. And so Paul brings them up as an example. Very interesting that Paul uses them as an example, and he says, look, do we not have a right to take along a believing wife just as the Lord's brothers? He uses another example. He uses Cephas, or Peter, as an example in verse 5. And we know that Peter had a wife. We know this very early on in the Gospels. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 14, it says that Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law. Matthew chapter 8, verse 14. Matthew chapter 8, verse 14. <laughs> there it is. Um, you have to say it three times and it magically appears. Uh, it says, when Jesus came into Peter's home, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick in a bed with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her and she got up and waited on him. So, uh, just by the fact that Peter had a mother-in-law, we know that Peter was married. And I believe that's the only mother-in-law of the disciples that we learn about through the Gospels. Uh, very interesting. But uh, apparently the other apostles had wives too. You see that again in verse 5, that he uses the rest of the apostles as an example, uh, emphasizing Peter as one of the apostles. So Paul himself, of course, was single. We learned this in chapter 7. He was either widowed or abandoned, we don't know. But Paul says that, of course, he's free to remarry in the Lord. He's free to take along a believing wife. That's a freedom, that's a right that he had. And yet, it was a freedom and a right that he didn't exercise. Isn't that amazing? Even though he had that freedom, he had the right, he didn't take it up. And here's the big point, and here's the Corinthians' greatest contention. Paul wasn't using his rights. To the Corinthians, believe it or not, that caused many of them to question his actual apostleship. If he's not using his rights, could he really be an apostle? Here he is as a guy who's slaving away by day without a wife. 
And then he comes here and, you know, is a part of the church as a side gig? What is this? And it appears as though many questioned him because of such a thing, that he wasn't taking advantage of his rights. But let's look back at chapter 7. Just turn a page or two over. Chapter 7, verse 8. Look how Paul talks about his laying aside of rights. He says to these same Corinthians, But I say to the unmarried and to the widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I. So Paul, either being a widow or being unmarried, he saw great advantage in remaining in that state. And of course, we learned throughout that chapter that the advantage was he's free to serve the Lord. He's free from the responsibility of a family to care for them, and his focus can be purely devoted to the Lord. And so he saw his singleness as a blessing in ministry, though some looked at it and said, it must mean that he's actually not an apostle. Unbelievable. In 2 Corinthians, so you can turn one book over, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, look at what he says about laying down his financial rights. He uses very strong language with the Corinthians. You see this in... Um, Several places throughout these two letters, First and Second Corinthians, that Paul uses strong language. The Corinthians must have been like his middle child, that stubborn middle child that you can just talk to with <laughs> stronger language. Uh, that must have been the Corinthians. But look at what he says, chapter 12 of Second Corinthians, verse 11. Paul writes to them and says, "'I have become foolish. You yourselves compelled me. Actually, I should have been commended by you for in no respect was I inferior to the most eminent apostles, even though I am a nobody. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. And listen to this. For in what respect were you treated as inferior to the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not become a burden to you? Forgive me of this wrong. Whoa. <laughs> strong language. He says, in what way did I mistreat you other than I just removed more burdens? Sorry. Wow, Paul. And we know in his letter to the Thessalonians too that he removed that burden from them, though they were much more grateful. They were much more supportive of Paul. He says, you yourselves know how we worked day and night so as to not be a burden to any of you. That's just Paul's way of going about ministry. But some of the Corinthians reckoned him as not a real apostle because of this. They thought, what kind of man of authority was he if he didn't take up these rights that he had? Well, Paul is correcting them, isn't he? And he's going to continue to defend his ministry in the coming verses, particularly his right to support, and we'll look at that more next week. Um, but for now, I want us to finish off by considering the implications and the applications that we can find in verses 1 through 7. And I want us to start off by thinking about the freedoms and rights that we all have. Again, in non-moral issues, in the issues where God has not spoken directly to all of us, we, of course, have freedoms to follow our God-given conscience. So it's not a question of if we have them, but it's a question of how we use them or if we use them. It's not if you have them, it's how or if you use them. And that's what Paul is wanting them to understand. That's what the Lord is wanting us to understand from this section of Scripture. The apostles, again, they were of a special authority. They were of a special freedom as God used them in the first century. He used them in a mighty way. And they understood, the apostles did, and especially Paul as he's describing here, that his rights and freedoms had to serve the cause of love. 
our rights, our liberties, must serve the cause of love. I had this quote ready last week, and I was upset with myself that I didn't share it last week. I realized it after the message, so I'm excited now I can share it with you. From Gordon Fee, he wrote in his commentary, "...in the church, personal behavior is dictated not by knowledge, freedom, or law, but by love for those within the community of faith. Everything one does that affects relationships within the body of Christ should have care for brothers and sisters as its primary motivation. Why do we serve? What motivates us to serve? Not knowledge, not freedom, not law, but love. Love does. Just because you have rights and freedoms, that doesn't mean you have to use them. Perhaps you've been acquainted with uh, a child. Maybe you've accompanied a child after he got his birthday money. And he's got five crisp $1 bills just burning a hole in his pocket, right? And this is the way I was. It's still the way I am. I'm thankful for my wife, um, who is not this way. But there's, there's that money. They have 17 things they know they want before they even get in the store. And you're telling the child over and over again, just because you have it, that doesn't mean you have to spend it. You don't have to spend it all right here, right now. Just because you have it, that doesn't mean you have to spend it. The same with our rights and our freedoms. Just because you have them, that doesn't mean you have to use them. Let love condition this. Let love put a fence up around this. You think about your property rights wherever you live. You've got rights on your property to do this or the other thing. You could build a big fence, maybe, if the city allows it. You could build a structure. Um, I know in some places you can have all kinds of animals. You could have horses and chickens and all sorts of things. But do you think about how that might affect your neighbor? We have to think about these things. And, of course, there's, this is a big gray area. There's no hard and fast line. But we are the type of people, because of our redemption in Christ, that we should consider love for neighbor in these things, shouldn't we? And so whatever our desires are, say we didn't have neighbors around us at all, we would do all these things. But let's lo- let love guide us in this too, that it can guard us against offending a brother, a sister, or a neighbor. So our freedoms and rights, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of how we use them. And the apostle, the office of apostle was a special office. I want to drive that point home today if you haven't noticed. But look again in verse 1 where Paul drives the point home. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? I want us to take away as an application for the, of this that there's a strict definition of this office of apostle, and it does not exist anymore. Okay? So embrace that reality. There are no apostles anymore in this sense. Now again, there are lowercase a apostles who are basically missionaries. We could say that. But no one can play the I'm an apostle trump card on you. You have the Word of God. You have the foundation that was given to the church from the apostles. No one can play the I'm an apostle card or I'm a president of the church card, or I'm the pope, or I'm the father, none of those things. There were qualifications for the office of an apostle. They had to see the risen Lord. They had to be with the apostles up until that time. There were signs and wonders that were performed in their midst. They had to speak with the authority of God when they said they were speaking for God. There was no, this is what the Lord says, but I might be wrong. 
They were speaking with the authority of God. And there are no apostles today because the Lord has designed His church in such a way that we don't need living apostles today. This is God's design, that He used them to give us the foundation of the Word, that His church would be built on that foundation and grow based on how we handle the Word of God and His faithfulness to work in us and through us. A third thing that I want us to take away from the passage today is that supporting ministers is a foundational aspect of ministry. It should be done, and there will be more on this, of of course, next week. Um, as we look into the upcoming verses. But supporting ministers of the gospel is a foundational aspect of ministry. And I'm thankful for our church that supports me, supports my family, and does so with generosity and gladness. It's never been an issue, to my knowledge, in the whole time that I have been attending this church. And for that, I'm very thankful. I do my best to work hard. I know maybe not all the time people see that. I do. I do. And I'm thankful for your support. And recently, we began, uh, in our last business meeting, we budgeted support for our lay pastors, the ones who are not vocational, the ones who are not full-time as I am. And we should often recognize them for their sacrifices because the support we've budgeted is support, but it's very little. It's more like a gift. And they are modern-day Barnabases who, just like Paul, are working a trade to not be a burden to us, even though... They are offering so much of their time and so much effort, taking them away from family, taking them away from other things they would do. We need to recognize them for that because supporting ministers is a foundational aspect of ministry. And fourthly, finally, we learn from our passage today that marriage and family are gifts to the minister of the gospel. Paul says again in verse 5 that, If you read it, uh, understanding this is a rhetorical question, we have a right to take along a believing wife. That's the takeaway from verse 5. It's a right. Ministers are free to marry. Ministers are free to have families. And those families are, too, to be supported. It's implied here, too, that as the apostles, the rest of the apostles had wives and went about, not only were the apostles supported, but their families were supported. Now, of course, this seems basic, but it's a controversial statement in some circles. Roman Catholics, of course, require that their priests, their monks, their nuns, and others take some sort of vows of celibacy, that they remain unmarried, that they do not have wives, husbands, children. That's what they're called to do. And this is an unbiblical teaching. It's an unbiblical binding of their conscience. We, of course, understand that a minister of the gospel doesn't have to be married. Paul's a great example of that. They don't have to be married. But if the Lord has not given them a gift of singleness, and if He has brought someone into their lives, who are we to bind another person's conscience in that matter? And so, any church or any organization that says that's the case, they're being unbiblical and foolish. But this teaching has been around a very long time. I want to show you a quote from a council back in 305 A.D. This is before the Council of Nicaea. They said, these people who came together said, it is decided that marriage be altogether prohibited to bishops, priests, and deacons, or to all clerics placed in the ministry, and that they keep away from their wives and not beget children. Whoever does this shall be deprived of the honor of the clerical office." 
We're a Bible church, not a council church, right? Because the Bible is the authority. And there are many helpful things that, that came about through councils that came together, creeds that were developed, lots of helpful things. This isn't one of them. <laughs> this is an unbiblical teaching. Furthermore, along with our passage today, there's 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5, which speaks to this very issue. It's unbelievable that any council could come to the conclusion when you see the testimony of Scripture. But in 1 Timothy chapter 4, starting in verse 1, it says, The Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Okay, these are doctrines of demons. What are they? By means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience, as with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by means of the Word of God and prayer. Pretty straightforward there, isn't it? It's a doctrine of demons to forbid marriage and to bind people's conscience even when it comes to food. We are not to bind someone's conscience in that way. Everything God has created is good, and it's to be received with thanksgiving when it's sanctified in prayer. So our big takeaway today as we consider some of these implications and applications is that gifts from God are to be accepted with gratitude, first thing. But secondly, those gifts from God, those freedoms, those rights, those liberties are to either be taken up or set aside with loving wisdom. So we receive these things from God as rights, as liberties, as freedoms. It's His good gift. But just because you have them doesn't mean you have to use them. And we want to have loving wisdom in all the decisions we make, that we either take, take them up or we set them aside. Let's pray. Lord, again, we thank You. You are the faithful one. You are the God of all creation and you have designed your church in a beautiful way. Please give us greater insight through love and wisdom to serve you faithfully in the rest of our days on this earth. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.